Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I, um, right now, um... This Bendrovsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Bendrovsky Show as I speak. It is Friday, June 19th, 2020, Juneteenth. I'm looking at the uh, Chicago Sun-Times, the headlines in the Sun-Times. On this Juneteenth, I'm risking up for the week ahead, a great column by Natalie Moore in the Sun-Times, Juneteenth. I'll probably talk a little Juneteenth with uh, our guest, as we always do. Uh, bonus time to Ben Jarowski's show. I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Happy Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth, Ben. This is Stacy Davis Gates, Vice President of Chicago Teachers Union. Stacy Davis Gates, otherwise known in the show as SDG or Governor Gates. Uh, I've been taking <laughs> a lot of heat, but for being such a good friend of Stacy Davis Gates over the last couple days. Why? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, Scooby Doo Gate. Uh, I've been taking a lot of heat from my friends of the uh, moderate Democratic persuasion, but we'll get to Scooby Doo uh, Gate. I just have to say something about Juneteenth. Uh, Stacy mm-hmm. and um, I, I told you this briefly uh, in when we when I called you before the show to make sure you're ready to go. The only thing that Donald Trump said over the last week that's even vaguely true is when he said that most white people, until he scheduled his Tulsa rally on uh, June 19th, didn't know what Juneteenth was. And I have to tell you, Stacy, I've been around white people my whole life. That is true. This whole new thing where every white person in the world knows what Juneteenth is, is fictitious. Okay. Can I just share that with you for a moment? Stacey Davis Gates. <laughs> you know, is... you don't have to share it. That's, that's well, well known. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? I'm just going to say this. It's okay. I mean, you know what I mean? Just it's okay. You don't know what Juneteenth is. I only know about it because uh, I remember Ralph Ellison wrote a book, a novel called Juneteenth, which c- completely got buried. Well, I don't even know if he ever finished it, actually. It came out after he died. But I, I, that was in the 90s. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, wow. I didn't even know about Juneteenth. And so, but it's just so funny now. Pe- people are getting the day off. And, but I think it's a good sign. Let's start on a positive note. I think it's a good sign uh, how radically this country has changed or I don't know if radical is the right word, but how much this country has changed since the last time we were on the show. And in between, of course, George Floyd was murdered um, in Minneapolis. What do you think about this, Stacey? What's your thoughts on this? Um, First, my heart is broken um, because it should not take the murder of black people to move um, 
the imagination of our collective society towards an anti-black, um, towards the eradication of anti-blackness and white supremacy. Um, yeah, people are dying at the hands of the state, be it by the police, be it in our um, the mass incarceration, the, the, the whether it's there or is in prison, um, whether it's because of lack of health care, whether it's because, you know, we live in communities that are um, besieged by environmental issues, pollution and so forth. Um, so, you know, the environment is sketchy. Um, policing is sketchy. Um, incarceration is sketchy. Um, you know, you close 50 schools down in Chicago and people make excuses for it. Um, so housing, you know, it has been demolished that is affordable. You have black people hanging on by a thread um, where their landlords are evicting them, even when there is um, a moratorium on that. There is a lot of things that should have already moved us to mass action. Um, and it hasn't. And I'm disappointed. I'm actually pretty afraid that it always has to take a spectacle of murder to get people to think differently. Well, how much do you think society has actually moved in the last two weeks? Well, you know, the last big deal with America was the Me Too movement. And then when Me Too became inconvenient because, you know, Joe Biden could or couldn't be caught up in it, you know, people started dismissing it and making excuses for it. So I'm, I'm leery of these moments um, because we're captive to it now see COVID-19, see shelter in place. So we're captive to it right now. And what happens when you don't just get to send out a statement, but you actually have to change your boards of directors, right? What happens when um, you have to start implementing practices within your school district that reflect a level of wokeness? Um, see, um, police officers in schools. It's not enough to be empathetic or give speeches. My job in labor is to shift the way that labor relates to black liberation. My job as a leader of a teacher's union is to shift the way in which we have reduced black children into things that we have to be protected from instead of human beings that need a well-funded, high-quality education, right? So I have specific objectives to carry out to try and eradicate white supremacy. I also have to become a co-conspirator to all of the fearless Black organizers that are leading with their bodies, with their hearts, with their minds, with their souls in this moment. So we have work to do, and the work is not just in a tweet or a statement or a Facebook post or, or tears when people ask you about it. The work is actually how do 
the environment, the institutions, the spaces in which we inhabit, how do they change to reflect racial justice and equity? And what is our role in that? That is what I am hopeful, because you've got to have hope as a Black person in America. That is what I am hopeful for in this moment, is that we begin to, like, we figure that part out. When you, when you talk about uh, how institutions have to change uh, to reflect racial justice in America, what are some of the specific changes you would like to see real soon? So for me, I, I'm going to, I'll go, I'll go micro and then I'll go my, macro. So for me, micro, you know, I'm in the labor movement. It's rare that you see more than one or two of me at a table at any like labor gathering. Though the workforce looks like me, the workforce is female, the workforce is black, the workforce is immigrant, the workforce is Latinx, right? And those individuals are not represented in leadership in our labor spaces. They're not represented as staffers. Um, they're not represented in elected leadership. I have to be a part of creating objectives to usher in that shift that if we work if we pay our union dues then we should be in decision-making spaces as well so that's one thing um from the the micro and then two i get to organize um an entire union behind the sanctity of black life right and that black life is not a hashtag or a slogan that they're people who want the same things that white people want or any people want. They want to be safe. They want to have a job that pays them a decent wage. They want to have shelter. They want to have access to, you know, quality educational opportunities. And so that's my work, right? On a very micro level, that's my work. It's not to just talk about it. Like I can talk, right? You can listen to me. I'm talking right now. But what is the legacy of that talk? How does that talk transform our world? Like, you can give all the great speeches in the world. If the institution that you have influence over, where I get a vote, even, if that doesn't change, then I have not done my work. On a broader level, I think it's incumbent on um, all people to acknowledge the power of young people in changing our society. Yesterday, the DACA decision provided us with a very clear example of how when young people fight, are courageous, are clear, are like just absolutely committed to it, even if it meant for them, even if it meant that they would be um, deported, they fought. So, like, you use that example and look at the young black organizers and leaders who are leading in this moment and have been in a lot of moments, quite frankly, in, the, in, the, in, in this recent iteration of the civil rights movement. They are leading their bodies. We have to not just be allies, we have to be co-conspirators. And that we have to be willing to make it work for them, to help raise their voice, to protect and to support, and to sometimes shut up and listen, right? That's our work. 
um, right now broadly. So when I hear a student, we had a webinar yesterday with actual high school students, educators, and others, you know, in the in the activist organizing world, you know, on Black Lives. And one part of the webinar <clears throat> was just really compelling to me. And the teenager, she was a black girl. And she was as powerful as she wanted to be. And I wish I could remember her name right now, and I'm upset with myself because I can't. Mm-hmm. But she said, if you need police officers to work with me, she'll say, why are you here? Why are you here? I'm not unsafe. I'm a student. I'm a person. But if that's what you need in order to work where I attend class, then I don't want you here. Like, we often remove the humanity from these children, young people, when they tell us what they need and force upon them our definitions of safety, our experiences with safety, and we fail to provide the thing that we say we are committed to providing. Like this, if people are not reflecting on what we are taking in and figuring out how to adjust, God bless us. Because they are very clear. So when you hear them say, we don't want CPD here, we want those resources to be a part of our social and emotional learning space. We want spaces that we can relax in. Like, I'll be honest with you. I When I go to places like Jones College Prep and the kids are still hanging out after school because they have these chairs and these um, couches, or if I go to, because I'm ISD vice president too. So, you know, when I go out, uh, I think it was Niles North, um, and you, you have this whole lounge space by the doors and it's four o'clock in the afternoon. School has been dismissed and kids are still hanging out because they feel safe and it's it's welcoming and they want to be there. The one thing that I understand about high school in Chicago is you ain't got to, you don't have to go home, but you got to get out of here. That's what we tell our high school students, right? And teachers aren't saying it. The security guards are saying it. The cops are saying it, right? It's insanity the way in which we have conceived of high school, right? This is a reckoning. And if folks aren't unwilling to pay attention to the, the differences and, and the racism that is embedded in the policies that have been created under the guise of safety, like we are really not being good stewards of our leadership. Now, Stacy, the way this this uh, issue is presented in Chicago uh, falls along this lines: so the issue of whether there should be a police presence in public schools. It's well, we don't want to tell schools what to do. I'm not making this up. I am doing my best uh, to recreate, paraphrase what it, uh, the mayor said and other people have said. Uh, we leave it up to the local school councils. So what's your reaction to that? Do you believe there should just be a blanket 
uh, and to having police presence in public schools, or do you think it should go school by school uh, as dictated by the local school council? So let me, let me separate fact from fiction. Number one, the contract is not with individual local school councils. The contract is between the Chicago Public Schools and the Chicago Police Department. So individual local schools cannot break a contract, right? That, that in itself is misleading at, at best, a lie at worst. Right. So that's number one. Number two. Um, so you have that. That's number one. Number two is that local school councils are being posited as an elected school board at every school in the city. When, in fact, once a school's rating, because all schools get a rating, SQRP, the local school council often is always an advisory local school council once the school has demonstrated um, issues, challenges, see poverty. So many of our black schools over time, and by black schools, I mean many of our schools where black students attend, they are often um, in school communities where the local school council doesn't really have a vote. It's just there as a nice committee, right? So that's two. And then three, you have to give an opportunity for the local school council to make an informed decision. When they received last year, the overwhelming um, feedback from that process was that it was thrown at us at the very last minute. And part two of that was that if we had voted no, it wasn't like that allocation of dollars was going to come so we could get a librarian, a nurse, a social worker, another counselor, or that we could even get a restorative justice professional and create a program. So it was like, you get the cop or you get nothing. And I'll be honest with you, yeah, we fight the boss all the time. But many principals look at that and say, yo, that's another body in the building. I'm already grossly understaffed. I don't have the resources that I need. So why would I give something back that I know I can or that I have? And so it sets up these false choices. And to say that this is a choice, a choice means there are two things right? Or three things or four things. What the local school councils had before them at the last minute was a cop or nothing. That's what it was. And so if the local, if we want to empower local school councils, then we have to do a better job of requiring AUSL schools and charter schools to have local school councils. Um, we have to do a better job of giving up this idea and think about this. We put schools on probation because they've broken the law, perhaps. Think about the language that CPS, um, the Chicago Public Schools, even uses to describe to describe how they rate and evaluate schools. It, look, it's upside down. And, it, and there is a reckoning happening in this moment. And, and, and with all honesty, this is a 
this is a very marginal and narrow decision to make in the grand scheme of all of the decisions around policing in Chicago. I mean, listen, we have a consent decree here in Chicago, a consent decree, right? And only 28% of the time, only 28% of the time has the, um, the city, the mayor, the police department, all of them figured out how to make the deadline, right? And this is from the monitor, and this is from the attorney general of the state. And so there has been a gross fall off even there. Like, folks, we got to get past the speeches. We got to get past the empathy and get to action. Like, I'm glad people recognize Juneteenth. It was a beautiful, it is a beautiful sight, you know, seeing black people celebrate and be happy because there's so much to be mournful about. And action. You have to transform this so black people's lives are better. I have three children who I've been sheltering in place with since March 13th. And when I tell you that I am sick of being a mother, (laughs) 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 but but at the same time, I never want them to leave my sight. Never want them to leave my sight. Then I cannot tell you how utterly paralyzed I have been as a mother trying to explain everything to them. And the paralysis comes from, I do not want to look at my baby and tell them, my baby, and tell them that I love you. I see your words. You are wonderful. And the world will see you as this because white supremacy. All right. Well, and I, then go ahead. But that's that subtracts the joy that they have in this moment. Because I remember when I was told what that meant and the defenses that went up and how I had to readjust because I'm black and I'm female and you have to be twice as good to get half as much as any white person. All right, now, Stacey, I'm, I don't, just, I'm not ready for that. I just go want ahead. to go back and clarify something because this is an important point about that, uh, the specific issue of LSCs, local school councils. And just for our listeners, some of whom are not familiar with Chicago, a lot of, we have a lot of listeners, uh, Stacey, who are not from Chicago. I'm learning that. So I always attempt to uh, translate our Chicago talk for them. Why they are into Chicago politics, I do not know, but I welcome them as listeners. All right. So in the city of Chicago, Uh, The public schools of Chicago, most of the public schools have uh, governing bodies called local school councils, which consist of parents and some teachers and some community reps. And they're supposed to have oversight over the public schools. The amount of oversight they have has varied from year to year. Uh, There's been since 1995, there's been a move toward uh, centralized uh, all the power under the the jurisdiction of the mayor. So LSCs don't have nearly as much power as they did when they were first created back in the late 80s. Uh, on this particular issue, if I'm understanding you correctly, and I just really want to make this sure we get this, uh, if a local school council from the Bend School, let's say, decides, you know what, we don't want a police officer in our school. Uh, we would rather use the 34, 
$5,000, whatever. Let's say it's $100,000 that it costs us to have that police officer. We would rather use that money for a librarian. So Chicago uh, Board of Education, give us $100,000 to pay for a librarian and uh, move that police officer out of here. That school, as I understand it, could not do that correct am i correct about that it's not like they could swap right. the police officer for 100 no, grand to they hire cannot swap. they cannot swap so the notion that local school councils have some jurisdiction on this the local school councils have some uh decision in this is a myth it is a myth that's a good word it is a myth. it's disingenuous is is how i would say it's disingenuous yes the local school council if you are not a local school council with probation has some authority. Absolutely. It does. I'm not going to extract that. And they are not canceling contracts. And if they refuse to have a, a police officer in their school and their school is already under resourced and understaffed, then they are not going to get another adult in the building. So it wasn't a choice. It was an or else. What a joke. Uh, well, they could ask the, the, the police officer, excuse me, uh, Officer Friendly, could you be our librarian? I mean, there's... there's the well, and here's the other part. And here's the other part of this discussion that we're not having mm -hmm. about policing. I want to hear a police officer say, look, y'all got me doing too much, right? I am not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a marriage counselor. I'm not a school counselor, right? I'm not a social worker. Like, I need them to say that out loud because they are playing positions that they are ill-equipped to play. I'm not, a, um, I'm not a social worker with a background in homelessness, right? Like, you have to be clear. This is what teachers are saying. I cannot be a social worker, a counselor, a nurse, and a teacher in, in an eight-hour day. Though you ask me to and then wonder why it performs and runs like it does. Because I am playing out of position more than I am playing inside of my expertise and skill. Right? And so that discussion should come from them. Like how many, they are never called to celebrate a party. You're called when that party goes to the left, right? Mm -hmm. So if there is a discussion about this, I think they would say, look, I would like to volunteer to be a coach or, you know, a mentor. I just don't need to work there. And then on top of this is this false, you know, analysis out there that schools will be unsafe because there won't be any security and, you know, the spate of school shootings that we have. Well, look, every single school has a security guard. Every single school, and sometimes more than the one. That being said, you have security guards and police officers in some schools. So this mythology, I like that, this mythology that they will be, quote, insecure in the way in which people conceive of safety it's not true, right? And and, and like and we got to get to the point of offering people what they need, not what we think they need, not what we want to give them, not what has been assigned to them because they are black, but we have to give people what they need. And if they need a counselor, a social worker, a school psychologist, a nurse, 
right? Give them that. Well, let, let, and let's, I'm going to break it down. The reality is that the Chicago public schools are forced to allocate a certain amount of money every year for police officers. All right. And so just think about it this way, uh, listeners, that's money they can't allocate for librarians or social workers or nurses or Spanish teachers or gym teachers or fill in the blanks. If you go to New Trier in Wilmette, in Winneka, one of the finest public schools in the state of Illinois, I guarantee you, Stacey Davis-Gates, I guarantee you that the parents aren't being asked to substitute a science teacher, a math teacher, a social worker, a nurse for a police officer. Do you follow what I just said? So in other words, if the people of Wilmette or Winneka want to pay extra for a police officer, they're not going to deduct it from the Spanish teacher's salary. Do you understand what I just said? I understand exactly what you're saying. I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, so layoff notices are going out today for our members who are educators. So you have teacher's assistants, you have special education assistants, you have um, band teachers who are being laid off today. And you have $33 million contracts that isn't even necessary. Like, I have not heard an argument for cops in school that sits because the argument is safety and security. So you have security guards in the school. What's the next argument? And no one has it. No one has the next argument. They only say safety and security. Well, you have safety and security. You have it. You have security guards in the school. So there's no argument for this. We have to begin to like unpack white supremacy and how it shows up in policy. And that is what we're dealing with. And so again, enough with the speeches. Let's make decisions. Let's make, let's take votes. Let's get roll calls. Let's be responsible for the change that we have to shift in our organization. And I'm not as a leader of an organization, I'm very clear how difficult it is to transform spaces. Like this ain't just me being Pollyanna and asking for something for the sake of asking for it. I know what it looks like to have transformation in your organization. Before 2010, um, CTU was, you know, silent. Largely. Yes, you could take largely out of that sentence. All right, uh, and that it's gonna it's a natural transition into uh, Scooby Doo Gate, um, and uh, we've talked about this on the show for the last couple of days. It begins with a confession from me when the story broke. When Dennis was the one who told me about it, Stacy, because you know me, I'm not really a, a Twitter follower to put it mildly. Uh, I had a confession. I didn't even know what Scooby Doo was. So when he You've never watched Scooby Doo? <laughs> My exact reaction. Huh? Stacy. Can I, can I, <laughs> I didn't are you know. Like, no, I <laughs> Yeah, he took he comes into my house. It was yesterday. Uh well it was you know, we're this is a uh whatever. It was he came into my house the other day, because Lord knows when anybody's listening to this podcast, you know. 
these podcasts get downloads for years, Stacy. I mean, it's unbelievable that <laughs> people will listen to a podcast. We had a conversation like a year ago. Like eight people listened to it yesterday. You know what I'm saying? It's just it's a whole thing. Anyway, all right. So we had the Dennis comes in. Hey man, did you hear about Scooby Doo and the Chicago Teachers Union? And I'm like, what's Scooby? And I thought, is Scooby-Doo on ice cream? That's <laughs> I thought Scooby-Doo was an ice cream. He, so I, he made fun of me, you know. Uh, but I no, I had never seen uh, Scooby-Doo. Uh, he showed me the cartoon, the retweet. I didn't get it. I, I didn't know who the characters were. Uh, I didn't know that the dog was Scooby-Doo. Oh, good Lord, man. <laughs> yeah, right? But I'll tell you, you what I do. I I'll tell you what I do know, ladies and gentlemen. I do know that nobody will met is going to trade a Spanish teacher for a cop. I may not know what Scooby-Doo is, but I know that, okay? And I think that's more important than Scooby-Doo. Just throwing that out there, Stacey Davis-Gates. I do know that. Or in South Bend, Indiana, for that matter, where uh, Stacey's from. They're not going to trade a cop for a Spanish teacher. If you want to put the cop in the school, put the cop in the school. But don't take away our Spanish teacher to do it. Anyway, so I didn't know what it was. Dennis explained to me uh, the joke, and um, so I, you know, I didn't like that you guys retweeted it. I thought it was unnecessary, and I thought it diverted from the message uh, you're giving, and I criticized you guys on the air. That said, this game that the mayor and her supporters play as though, how do I put this? It, the CTU is just, is this unreasonable group of malcontents that just wants to fight for the sake of fighting, I think that's inaccurate. So I'd like to get from you uh, your response to uh, Scooby-Doo Gate, whether you think it was a good idea or a bad idea, whether you agree with me that it diverted from your message, and talk a little bit about uh, the relationship with the mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. It seemed like they were so happy they got you in a gotcha moment. That's why I said, everybody said, hey, Benny, your girl. Your girl, Stacey Davis Gates. Yeah, go ahead. You know, the irony of it is that, you know, the end of the Scooby-Doo episode is always a gotcha. That's the irony. (laughs) Look, it's not lost on me where the pushback is coming from. Like, I'm not a dum-dum. I get that pushback. And what I will say to that, you know, very clearly is that eight what was it, eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mm -hmm. And all of us have a role to play to stay focused on creating institutions, spaces, policies, laws that reflect the extraordinary amount of discontent that we are experiencing, right? Um, And that has distracted from the work. So I regret the distraction. Absolutely, I do. Um, And when we refocus, it's still about the young lady at Marshall High School who was dragged down the steps by a cop, but that school doesn't have a full-time social worker and it doesn't have a school librarian. So when folks get over the indignity that they felt I want them to then be just as intolerant of a black girl being dragged down the steps in her high school 
after being paid by a cop in a school that doesn't have a full-time librarian. I need the same amount of outrage over a meme with that abuse. Again, it isn't lost on me. And let's talk about proportionality. It isn't lost on me. Listen, I'm black and I'm female and I work in a space where white boys occupy more space than they should. Imagine what that feels like on a daily basis. How much of your feelings that you pass up just to get through your debt. See, here's the thing. I might be the wrong person to talk to about these things because if I took a moment to reflect on my victimization, I wouldn't even get out of the bed every morning. So, again, it ain't lost on me. But my way of coping doesn't sound like it's everyone's way of coping. Fair enough. And I want to focus on making sure that black girls aren't dragged down the steps at any more schools in the Chicago public schools. And that every black girl that attends a Chicago public school gets a nurse, a counselor, a social worker, a Mandarin teacher if she wants them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's our work. Again, it's cool to talk to you, Ben, but this ain't my work. This is amplifying the work but this is not the work. All right. Uh, let's emphasize how cool it is to talk to me and then let's move on to my next question. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Now let's talk about CTU's relationship with Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, and mm -hmm. in particular your relationship uh, with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And it seemed they were so eager to get you in a gotcha moment uh, and they went full, uh, you know, they hit, hit you hard with it. Uh, so what is the state of the relationship between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and yourself? Well, look, so our relationship is twofold. Like I, like I say all the time, the mayor controls every institution in the city, and she has her lieutenants over those. Um, our situation with the schools often devolves into the mayor because the mayors of the city have often said that if Schools are not working well. That's a big political liability. So they often treat it as a political, you know, football. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, listen, and, you know, God forgive me for telling Karen's business, but I'm going to do it. Um, Karen made me come. Karen and Murray had a private meeting, and, and Karen made me come. Time I'm out. not going to disclose Karen is Karen Lewis, the former president of the Chicago yeah. Teachers Union. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, everyone doesn't know Karen. Yeah. Karen Lewis. Um, no, President Emerita of the Chicago Teachers Union. That is correct. Um, my forever president. Um, and she had a private meeting. She made me come to the meeting on some um, sister girl stuff. Right? Like, and Karen, you know, is just as clear and brave and charming and brilliant as they come. And she's also clear about Black women in leadership and what it will take for that leadership to manifest. And um, look, the Island Branch was offered then by one of the baddest to ever do it, by, it, by a person that could literally you know, still command in any way that she wants to. And I was there with that offering. 
because she wanted it clear that it was an offering and that we wanted to, you know, figure it out. Now, look, Karen is also, was also clear that this is a labor union and you are a boss. Well, let's center something else in this, too, and figure it out. Um, so that's actually the last time it was a conversation that related to anything outside of the collective bargaining agreement. Um, there was the one time we were there for a meeting towards the end of the strike um, where we were all in the same room together, but there were multiple people in there. Um, so, look, I don't know. It ain't no really, it's what it is. She's our boss. Um, and in labor, we know, well, some of us in labor know that the boss just doesn't give out nice things. Um, they don't. You fight for them. You struggle for them. Like you didn't get a five day work week because the boss said, you know what? Productivity is just fine for five days. You struggle for it and you received it. And like this whole concept that is being promoted that you get to sit at a table with people and politely come to conclusions, it just ain't been my experience for anything. Again, going back to the victimization of being black, being female in our society, ain't nobody giving you nothing. Everything that you get you going to scrap for it and you're going and, and you're going to covet it and you're going to work hard to maintain it. So I don't even have this idea that I can walk into a room and people just say, Hey, here you go. Like, cause that ain't been my life. That's, that's not any experience that I can give you. The experience that I've had is that you got to figure it out twice as good to get half as much. That's been my experience. All right, so here's how I see it, and then you respond. And as I tell all my guests, feel free to vigorously disagree with me. But I, I make no bones about this. I'm old. I'm near the end of it. I am pro-teacher. I am pro-teacher's union. My mother was a teacher, and she was uh, a union steward. Okay, so I'm pro-teacher union. I do not see a contradiction between good education for children and a strong union. Now, I have had my issues, Stacey, and you, I've told you this, with the Chicago Teachers Union down through the years. In the 90s, they wouldn't even talk to me. And throughout most of the O's, they didn't talk to me. It was only when Karen got elected that the, they started, the, suddenly the Chicago Teachers Union fell in love with me. But I, so I, I don't hold back on that. But what I, irritates me is this notion that exists so much in the media among some of my brothers and sisters in the media, that somehow or other, you got to be tough on the teachers' union because automatically a strong teachers' union that stands up for the rights of teachers, including the right to get a good wage, somehow or other, that's detrimental to the education of children. I have never bought into that. I feel as though we as a city have bought into that. I feel like our last uh, three mayors have bought into that. Definitely Mayor Rahm did Mayor Daly at the end of his career did, and it seems like Mayor Lori Lightfoot has started on that path. That the way to win over Chicago, corporate Chicago, mainstream Chicago, north side of Chicago, is just to beat up the teachers' union. Now, that's how I see it. What's your view? Um, I think that we're women, and um, 
women have to embody um, a, a, amenable behaviors and that the expectation that women figure it out, make it happen, be okay, and maintain a smile is embedded into how we interact as individuals, right? Um, and there's an expectation that teachers just take it. Whereas, like, li- listen to all of the waffling that the boss does when it comes to the contract negotiations with FOP, right? But when it's contract negotiations with the teachers, they talk about budget cuts. They talk about um, larger class sizes. They talk about all of the things that you cannot have and make you and force you into a corner to either take it or to have mass action. Right. Whereas with the guys, they figure out how to make it work and they don't use a lot of saber rattle. They demean teachers. They um, extract from teachers. They actually have our teachers thinking, and this ain't even in Chicago, this is, you know, across the board, that your time to prepare for your job is free time. And not like paid time, right? What job do you have? Do nurses? Do, do, you know what I'm saying? What job do you have, Ben, where you're working on your own time? And that is expectation. They expect teachers on Sunday evenings to occupy their dining room tables and plan for their school day. But do not want to compensate that time during the Monday through Friday rigor. And it's just, it's unreasonable. And that's just one of the things that the district, our bosses, require from us. And I do think it's embedded in gender inequity and gender roles. I do. And I've always thought that if I was a person was full of men, this would not be the task that they take. Um, they would they would treat us better. I do believe that. They would treat us a lot better. And I think that it doesn't matter who's in control um, or who's driving the bus, if you will, is that the bus in itself presupposes white supremacy um, and patriarchy. And that these things are the, these things are embedded in policy um, in relationships and interactions. Well, the we, the white supremacy part of it, or the racial disparity part of it, gets back to what I said earlier. The powers that be in this state and this city do not treat kids in Chicago public schools with the expectations that they treat kids in Wilmette and Winnetka. And I could tell you that, Stacy because I'm from Evanston and I know how they treat kids in the North Shore suburbs. And again, I'll say it again, they would never tell a tax-paying parent in Wilmette you have to choose between a police officer and a Spanish teacher. And I can't emphasize that point enough. And now, is that white supremacy? Is that bias, racial bias? 
Is that just part of a planning process to get black people to move out of Chicago? I don't know the answer to that one, Stacy. You, you get what I'm saying? I just know it's a fact. Well, you did give the answer. <laughs> it's a fact, and you gave all the reasons why. So, yeah. you, look, it's difficult for people to live in that thought process. And it's even more difficult to be black and to experience that, or an immigrant, or Latinx, or poor, right? Because we often don't even have a discussion about what it looks like to be poor and white in this country. Yeah, I uh, I hear. All right, I'm gonna uh, switch gears because we're almost out of time here, uh, and I want to get some national conversation tomorrow. Again, uh, the prob- uh, today actually because you're gonna hear this today. Whatever on uh, June twenty uh, on June twentieth, uh, President Donald John Trump will be having a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's gonna be his uh, post pandemic, even though we're still in the middle of the pandemic. The world is insane, Stacy. Uh, big rally as he returns to arena rock, rock and roll rallies for himself. What's your general thoughts about what to expect from Donald Trump at the rally and going forth uh, into the presidential election? Um, I think he's terrible. I mean, he's, he, he will go down in the history as one of the worst presidents, the once worst presidents, worst leaders um, in anyone's history book. He's, he's absolutely terrible. Um, we are in a tougher space as a country, um, our humanity, our health, because the guy is, is in charge. Well, because he's there, because ain't nobody in charge. Um, he's terrible. He's absolutely terrible, and he's a racist, and he's a white that's Like, there's nothing else to say. The, the tragedy is that, anyway, look, we got to get him out of there, you know, and we have to be serious about doing it. I just pray that we see momentum um, this fall, the end of the summer and the fall, and that people are motivated to push this guy out um, because our very, like, humanity depends on that. He's, he's, he's pretty bad. Do you have a, a favorite for uh, Joe Biden to pick as vice president? Nope. I don't. Um, I, I don't. Like, Here's the thing. I I see the utility of my vote. I'm not like gun whole about my vote. So um, it's going to be what it is. We just know it won't be Trump. And that's good enough for right now. Um, I do want base building organizations and unions to get sick of this moderation and this status quo behavior. I think that what we are seeing demonstrated in these moments are that people need, not want, but actually need more leadership and policies and laws that reflect their humanity. You know, I, I say justice and equity a lot, but anytime you can watch a man die on camera for eight minutes, what is it, in 46 seconds, that's about humanity. That ain't just about justice and equity. It is, and like it's, it is too about humanity to watch another human being die, to like put your knee on another human being and watch that. And how many of these videos have we seen? How many of these lynching photos have we 
looked at in history books. Right? Enough is enough. And stop telling me that it's going to happen or this is how the sausage is made or we need to slow down. No, we don't. The thing about Juneteenth that I think is so uh, that is one of the things about Juneteenth that is under talked about is that black people were leaving their bondage. They were liberating themselves already. Right? Mm-hmm. And the government had to respond to our self-liberation. They had to respond to that. And because they had to respond to that, they made, uh, they will, you know, Lincoln came through with the Emancipation Proclamation begrudgingly, right? Begrudgingly. And we can get into all of those reasons why, but this ain't history class. So, um, and even when they said it, they didn't really say it. Right. And and isn't that just like the policies that are focused towards black people is that we liberate ourselves. We fight for our rights. We make a way out of no way. The government then responds and then it's half ass. It ain't on time. It's kind of okay. And they force us to take it. And so the very idea of Juneteenth is that the government responded in a half-assed way, and consequently, people who needed to know that the government had their back, that there was an actual policy that freed them from the bondage of enslavement, they found out just because they found out. And that's kind of like the replay of how we are in our country right now. So listen, power, to all of the leaders right now on the street leading the liberation, the continued liberation of black people. Um, co-conspirators are needed in this moment. And it, it ain't just a corporate statement about Juneteenth. It's actually about the decisions, the policy, the vote, and the legislation, the appropriation, right? that we make in this moment. Don't just change the picture on the box of rice and syrup. By the way, I like how you call them co-conspirators. Some people call them allies, co-conspirators. That's a, that's pretty good. Co-conspirator, because co-conspirator is an active, it's it's active, it's thoughtful. An ally is I'm patting you on the back. (laughs) I'm wiping your bra with the towel. You know, just to like give an example of it. We need co-conspirators, people active in the liberation of black people. All right. Very well put. Stacey Davis-Gates, we've run out of time. Uh, it's always a blast talking to you. And uh, now, my goodness, it was the, the Davis show uh, this whole weekend. <laughs> Henry Davis, uh, Stacey's baby brother, is a good friend of this show, uh, was on Wednesday. I don't know if you heard that one. Oh, my God. We, <laughs> we had too much fun. Uh, of course you did. Yeah, and uh, we had this moment. Uh, this has never happened on a show. We were talking about uh, Drew Brees, uh, the the quarterback mm-hmm. for New Orleans Saints, who uh, mm-hmm. had this really bizarre moment. It, 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 when, when Henry talked about it, it was bizarre because out of nowhere, in the middle of, it was like a week out after uh, George Floyd's murder, he gave an interview in which he said he thought it was disrespectful 
uh, for football players to take a knee during the national anthem. So he, in other words, they were insulting the national anthem. So he brought back the old argument that <laughs> was really outdated. It was well, it was ridiculous when it was made, but it was really outdated and the wrong thing to say at that moment in time. He got blasted and he did a 180. And we were talking about that, and your brother pointed out to me the absurdity. Drew Brees had took a knee at one point with his teammates. He was showing that he was a good ally. He took a knee. And we just, we had this moment, we were just laughing so hard. The poor guy forgot everything. You know what I'm saying? He forgot he took the knee, forgot he was for taking a knee. It's a crazy time, Stacey Davis Gates. And uh, let's hope we can, I don't know what, propel that craziness into positivity. What about that? Well, no, not positivity, progress. There we go. Even better. Uh, even better. Thank you. All right, Stacy, stay safe. We'll bring, we'll talk to you probably in a few weeks, all right? For sure. You, you stay safe, too, and it's always great to be on your show. And I love talking to you, and it is the work to be. <laughs> all right Stacey. Stacey Davis Gates take care everybody we done